0: Welcome to the Ots and Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Preem. Eric Scopel is with me as always. Uh, and today is Wednesday, which means it's Mailbag Wednesday. You guys dictate where this show is going. Uh, and by doing that, you tweet at Eric Scopel on Twitter. You DM him on DuckTerritory.com. You snail mail him if you have his address. Uh, call him if you have his phone number. Uh, and... Ask your questions, and we take the best ones and compile them into one big mailbag, which is today. And I'll be honest, I'm looking at the questions right now. we got some good ones on here, and we've got a wide ranging of, of topics. And I think a, a lot of them um, are most mostly around the fact that college football season is over, and now we can start projecting. We can start talking about the 2020 season because that's what we do, right? Uh, and where Oregon football could be at, who's in play, coordinators, who's in play at receiver, who's in play at quarterback, and, and down the list. So, Eric, I turn it to you. Uh, let's get this show on, under the uh, on the way.
1: Uh, I should say before we start, don't call me. I have I have like a one percent, and Matt knows this. I like one percent of the time I'll answer the phone. Uh, so <laughs> ca- calling me would be a useless venture on your part. But can we text? uh, uh yeah, if you text me, I'll probably see it, and then it's like twenty percent if I'll respond or not. I'm a really fun person to to communicate with via via the phone. Well, uh, like, we're
0: communicating right now, so I can I can say we do communicate. That's true, and it we're, is we, fun.
1: It is fun. All right. Okay. (laughs) It's not always fun for people trying to get a hold of me, but when it's a professional venture, like doing a podcast with Matt, I never say no. All right. First question from at Rye underscore Samu. Um, How will the coaches deal with the crowded room at linebacker? Do they move guys around like Noah Sewell to defensive end, for example? Or do you guys think all the guys will end up at linebacker uh, as depth rotation options? What about using more linebacker heavy schemes? Thank you. Um, I, I think it's interesting because we saw last year that basically one of the linebacker positions was eliminated because Andy Avalos is, you know, basically playing closer to a three-three-five than the four-three-five or something we would have seen in previous years. Um, and and uh, I should not say four-three-five. I guess four-three-four because or three-three-five or whatever it is. But uh, but but it, we, we saw a position basically eliminated and. Oregon is bringing in some very, very highly regarded linebacker prospects, and you know we were going through, and we'll think we'll talk about it later in the podcast, kind of the depth chart for next year. And it's interesting because Oregon signs the top two inside linebacker prospects in the country, and how do you fit Justin Flo and Noah Sewell into the rotation with a guy like Isaac Slade, Mattalatia? Back for his his junior year, a guy who was uh, one of the top tacklers on the team, one of the top performers defensively. So I think there is going to be some push and pull here in terms of of the linebacker uh, position and, and how they utilize it. Now I don't know if I would go more linebacker heavy schemes because if you do that, you're probably taking one of the defensive backs off the field. And with the news earlier this week about who all's back there and who they've signed and the plethora of talent there, I don't know if it's wise to take off one of those guys because those are really good players as well. So I think interesting to talk about and, and regarding jumping around here because there's like five questions included in the first one. But in, regarding Noah Sewell at defensive end, that could be an interesting thing. Um, I wouldn't be shocked either if, if Noah fits in kind of at that stud linebacker spot that, that Bryson Young – played this year, you know. Um, I, would, I would think maybe Noah Sewell and Mace Foon will have a chance there, maybe an Adrian Jackson as well. But there are a lot of questions at linebackers, certainly right now, given the fact that you lose two starters and given the fact that, like, the question kind of acknowledges, you're not playing as many, but you just went out and signed some really, really good ones.
0: I think a big reason why Oregon's defense was so successful this season and will be – for the foreseeable future, is the ability for Oregon to rotate in a lot of guys on the defensive side of the football. And I I don't think it's a coincidence that Troy Dye's statistics were down this yep. season. Uh, but, yeah, it felt like his impact was at the highest point of his four-year career at Oregon. Um, and I think a, a a big reason for that is – because Oregon rotated a lot of guys at linebacker. Guys were fresher. They had better depth. And when you have better depth, uh, there's less drop-off. And when you're playing fewer snaps, you're able to play at your best for longer periods of time uh, during the football season. And, and I, I think we're going to just see a lot of rotation at the linebacker spot. And it's going to be more so of, hey, let's just keep guys fresh. Let's make sure that the, the three or four linebackers that are out there, uh, the ones that are, are able to go full go and, and play at, you know, the highest level that, the, the, that they're able to play at because they're not having to play 70, 80 snaps a game. They're only having to play 30, 35, 40 snaps because of the depth behind them or the depth ahead of them uh and they're able to b- just basically play as hard as they possibly can, knowing that in a series or in two series they're gonna come off the field because another guy just as good as them uh will be coming onto it to give them a breather. So it, I don't I don't think it's a surprise that you know you, you look at the 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 tackles totals and you know you, you look at Maze Funa had twenty six, Samson New had thirty four, uh you you've got uh, Bryson Young with 56. Isaac with, uh, Slay with 62. Uh, you've got Troy Dye who led the team with 84. Uh, and then, you know, Brady Breeze and Javon Holland, uh, were two guys that I, I felt like played really close to the line of scrimmage. Same thing with Nick Pickett. Uh, and both of those guys, you know, all three of those guys had 45 or more tackles. I mean, Oregon just did not have to rely on one or two guys. To, To make all these plays and, and yeah, they've got, uh, they've got a ton of linebackers on the roster, but I just think they're going to rotate and we're going to see a group where, you know, Crystal ball's talked a ton. He said a couple days ago that they're getting closer to having the depth and the body types that they want where they can just shuffle guys in and out and know that there's not going to be a drop off when someone comes off the field.
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's the big thing for, for me as well is, is the depth is going to be awesome. And the fact that we're sitting here in this podcast and we're not sure about if Noah Sewell, who's a five star recruit and one of the most highly rated guys to ever sign with Oregon, we're not sure if he starts or if they're going to have to move him around positionally. That speaks to the depth and the talent for this group. And that's again, a very good problem to have because we haven't really talked too much about like a guy like a Samson New, who was one of the team's better linebackers this last year, but wasn't in a starting role who's uh going to have an opportunity, you know, you would think this year for a little bit more of a, of a role, but maybe not because he's going to have to battle with a Justin Flo or, or an Isaac Slade for positioning and, and, or a guy like Adrian Jackson, who I'm still very, very high on, who was a pretty good contributor as a freshman in 2018, but didn't play at all last year because of injury. If he returns to health, I could see him being a guy that they, they want to have out there quite a bit. Um, and you just go down the line and there are more players kind of like that. So Um, It's a very good problem to have, and one that a guy like Andy Avalos, who's always been pretty multiple and creative in how he uses his personnel, I'm sure he's kind of just excited about the possibilities that they have. Yeah, with the depth, because I think they can get really creative, and maybe they will be kept, you know, depending upon who they're facing. Maybe they will play more four linebackers or five linebacker sets, or maybe they'll be playing two linebacker sets, but it'll be a different, you know, variation of how they utilize them. So, a lot of good questions, a lot of interesting things, and I think, an off season where, because of the depth, because of the additions, there's going to be a lot of really interesting kind of possible personnel options that they'll be they'll be working through throughout the off season and into the fall. All right, second question from at Josh Harden underscore four. I get that there are five and four star recruits. I believe this is referring to guys like Flo and Sewell that we were talking about a second ago. But there was more opportunity for guys to contribute contribute significantly this year than I think there will be next year. Am I off on this? Um, good question. I think um you know you have to recognize that a player like Justin Flo might just be too good and then the opportunity issue doesn't matter. And then there's a good opportunity for him because he steps right in and it would make a lot of logical sense for him to step right into that spot Troy Dye vacates at that one inside linebacker spot. I think that's perfectly made for him. I would be sh- I would be pretty surprised if he's not at least in the competition for that spot, but overall, I think there's some some good points on that defense in particular that there just aren't a, going to be quite as much opportunity. Like a guy like Dante Manning, who's a one of the best defensive recruits Oregon's ever signed. Like, where does he see the field? He's not going to be starting at corner, I don't think, unless he's just incredible. Is he going to come in over a Thomas Graham or a Yomvel Lenore or even a Mikhail Wright? I don't know about that. A guy like uh, Bennett Williams, who I know is only a three-star on 24-7, but was a freshman All-American at Illinois, he's going to have to be a heck of a player to come in and beat out Brady Brees, Nick Pickett, and Verona McKinley for one of those starting spots. Um, so I think there is some, you know, especially on the defensive side, I think there is some validity to that point about how there will be less opportunity in terms of winning starting jobs. But um, offensively, I don't necessarily think that's really the case. Uh, You know, you look at the possibility at wide receiver, I still think there's, a chance a guy like Chris Hudson comes in and plays a huge role. A guy like Devin Williams, who, tra- who transferred, could come in and play a really significant role. If they were to go out and add a tight end, that person could come in and play a lot, too. On the offensive line, maybe not quite as much, but there is still opportunity for some of these recruits to play. I just think it comes down to kind of position by position.
0: I mean, look, Chris Paul said it uh, on Monday when the Ford juniors announced, and we got some time to talk with him about other topics. Besides that, and he brought up the fact that iron sharpens iron. I mean, he said that time and time again that the best of the best is what is who will play, and the goal is to to make. I mean, he said this a couple times too um, throughout the season of you're only as good as your scout team, and if your scout team is made up of walk-ons, no offense, but you, you could be good, but. It, It's it's going to take a really good effort from those guys to get your four- and five-star recruits good and prepared. But if your scout team – if you're so talented and so deep that your scout team includes a handful of walk-ons but also more three-star, four-star guys that simply can't play just because there's three or four – four- or five-star recruits ahead of them, then – you're going to be really good because the guys that you're practicing against are are capable of playing at other Pac-12 schools. And Oregon is going to go out and find guys, and they're going to push, and and they're going to dangle out. Look, every week it's a battle. Christopher mentioned that at, at the Monday press conference that, you know, when you're at Oregon and you're in college, uh, you have a bad day at practice, you still get your scholarship you still go back and, and you get your food cart and you get your meal plan, uh, your dormitories paid for and all of that. But in the real world, if you don't perform, you get let go and you're out of a job. And he said that, you know, and he said this a couple times that it's up to Oregon and their coaching staff to develop an, a, a, a culture in which every single week you basically got to go out and win your job and, and. You know the guys that play the best in practice are going to be the ones that win. And to do that, to get the best out of each guy in practice every single week, you have to load up on talent. And you can't worry about, oh well, this guy was a starter in in 2019, and you know he, he he was he was good, but he wasn't a superstar. Uh, but we, we Oregon shouldn't go after a guy just as good as him uh, this season because he's coming back. That's that's how teams fall. And the teams that rise are the ones that don't care about who's coming back. They continue to find players just as good, if not better, uh, at the positions of guys are coming back.
1: And I think that's clearly what we've seen Oregon do, uh, especially on that defensive side of the ball. And it's going to be really fun. And, and I know I think we're going to talk defensive too deep and, and kind of what we project as a starter later on the podcast, but. Um, there are going to be some awesome, awesome position battles. Even though they bring back nine starters, um, I think it's going to be a really fun spring, a really fun offseason and fall in terms of just figuring out how this all comes together. All right, from at Nat Fod, do you think it makes sense to have Jim Mastro at offensive coordinator since we have since we've been running his offensive formation, and then bring in a quarterback coach from the outside? Um, Maybe. I mean, I I, I think at this point, Christopher, I'm sure, is considering all options, but um, the question is, I I think the question is more of can you find somebody that you think is better set for for the position? Um, Internal candidates should always be considered, and I guess if you are unfamiliar with Oregon staff, he's currently uh, the running backs coach and and, and is one of the innovators of the pistol. Um, We've talked about that a lot in the podcast, so I'm sure most are familiar, but um, I don't know, Matt, what do you think? I mean, did, would you, would you be okay if they stick with, say they stick with Mastro and they go out and they find maybe a young quarterback coach? Is that something you'd be for or, or do you think it makes more sense to bring in, I guess, an external offensive coordinator candidate and leave Mastro where he's at?
0: Well, I know, I mean, that is one of the options that they are considering,
1: uh,
0: for the offensive coordinator position. Now, um, maybe this goes along the same lines of, of, you know, your offensive line or your defensive line or your secondary, what, what have you. Um, maybe Chris ball examined that scenario and went out to look at, examine the options that he could have to hire simply a quarterback's coach and felt like, you know, the quality of quarterback coach that was out there that that was available or interested in, that reciprocated their interest was not, on par with the level of a quarterback coach that they could get if they attach the OC title to. Um, You know, maybe, you know, and I say that by, you know, the offensive line we always hear, find your five best offensive linemen and then figure out where everyone else fit you know, where everyone plays along the offensive line. So with that in mind, maybe Oregon went out and said, okay, let's try and find a QB coach. We'll elevate Mastro uh, to offensive coordinator and maybe they just didn't like the options that were out there uh, of just pure QB coaches only. Um, and maybe they looked at it and said, well, we think highly of Mastro and that he could be an offensive coordinator. He's the run game coordinator right now. And we can maybe bump his pay up, keep him here, and at the same time get a significant upgrade at the quarterback's coach position uh, if we attach, you know, co-OC or passing game coordinator or full-OC to whoever we hired via that route. I think that's where things are, are trending right now is they're they're looking to find someone to attach a co-OC or a full-time OC uh, and then bump Mastro's pay up and keep him heavily involved in the game planning.
1: And it's maybe it's a pass, pass game coordinator, run game coordinator kind of thing like we see at LSU that worked out so successfully yeah. this last year. Um, yeah, and I think there's going to be a lot of options, and it. it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. I mean, I think if you need an update, Christopher said on Monday that they were hoping to have something finalized in the next week or so, although he did say a couple times he didn't have a timeline, but gave a timeline anyway, so <laughs> sort of confusing. But, yeah, it, it does sound like something higher will be made in the next week or so uh, based upon the trajectory he was expecting, at least on Monday. All right, fourth question from at paradise 919400 is Justin Shorter in play for the Ducks? Um, and just a brief uh, background on who that is Justin Shorter was the first or the top rated wide receiver prospect in the 2018 recruiting class a couple of years ago. He committed and signed with Penn State. He played there uh, in 2018 and a little bit into 2019 before putting his name into the portal. Uh, only caught 15 passes for 157 yards in two seasons of play. Um, he's somebody that was very very highly regarded he's out of New Jersey Oregon obviously had some success with Juwan Williams they also have Kenny Sanders on staff who worked at Penn State you know, as a recruiting uh, you know in the recruiting rooms and, and so obviously there's connections there um, it would be an interesting addition he's not somebody who would be available to play right away unless there's some sort of waiver that I'm unfamiliar with so he'd be a player that would sit for 2020 and then come into 2021 with, I think, three years of eligibility, because I think this year was – 2019 was his freshman year. Um, Matt, what do you think about that? Have you heard anything on that? And I should say before I turn over to you, I'm looking at 24-7 sports, and they do have the uh, transfer crystal ball. And I'm not going to say which school it is, because some of you listening aren't a subscriber, and this is a subscription service, but there is another school that has one of the – has the only uh, prediction for Justin Shorter, and it's not to Oregon.
0: Um he's interested in Oregon. He was at one point interested in Oregon. Uh, I think Oregon has some interest in there too, but the issue is is he can't play right away. Right. And um, Oregon needs guys that can play right away because if they're not, they can just go out and find a recruit that's a high school player that has more years of eligibility that is just as good or or close to as good as Justin Shorter is. Uh, So I don't, I think if if Oregon exhausts all avenues of of talent acquisition of trying to find uh some kind of playmaker at the receiver tight end spot and doesn't do it and Justin Shorters available um after some period of time then Oregon could get really serious with him but right now I just don't think he fits uh what Oregon needs in 2020 because he can't play right away
1: And we should note that Oregon is pretty uh, tight from a scholarship perspective, especially with all those uh, juniors coming back. So um, you'd love to have a former five-star top ten recruit, someone who's 6'4", 235 pounds like Shorter is, but it it might just not be in the cards from a scholarship number perspective. All right, let's take a quick break.
0: Uh, You're listening to the Austin Audible's Mailbag Edition. All right, welcome back to the Austin Audible's mailbag. I'm Matt Prame. Eric Scopel is with me. As always, you guys send us the questions. We answer them to our best of abilities. Uh, We are on question five, I believe. Is that right, Eric?
1: That is correct. And the fifth question comes from at dweather 5 Do you feel like we're going to be real contenders for the national championship next year, or are we a few years away from reaching that potential? Um, I'll start and then I'll hand it off to Matt. Uh, I think it's going to come down to the offense and, and how capable they are. I think the defense is going to be a national championship contending caliber defense. I'm not going to say that they're going to be the best defense in the country. Maybe, maybe they will be. I mean, you look at what they return and, and where they were ranked in a lot of statistics in 2019, and it's not outside the realm of possibility, we should say, with nine starters coming back with some of the players in this recruiting class and, and some of the players coming back from injury, that this could be – a group that takes even a, a bigger step. And also, I should say, under in and Andy a second year, um, there can be a lot of growth for a defense from year one to two um, with a new coordinator. Um, so it's not outside, outside of the realm of possibilities in my mind that they could get there defensively. I think it comes down to the offense. And it's going to come down to this offensive coordinating hire, who they bring in, um, how quickly they're able to get things figured out. And it's going to come down to the personnel. I mean, you know Oregon needs the quarterback position to be Uh, at a a very high level, I think, to contend for something like this. I mean, you look at the quarterbacks that were playing in this year's college football playoff, and uh, all those guys are going to have NFL opportunities at the very, very least. I mean, uh, the the guys that were playing in Monday's game uh, are possibly number one overall draft picks in both the upcoming next two drafts. So you're talking about Joe Burroughs and Trevor Lawrence. Tyler Shuck is a very good player. I'm not sure he's proven that he's even close to the realm of those guys. So... Um, and I'm a big, and I'm a big Tyler Shuck fan, and I think he's going to be a great player, but I'm not sure he's quite there yet. So to me, it's wait and see. Uh, you know, I want to see more from what this team has offensively. I think that's what it will come down to. But if you were just to say, is the defense good enough to be there? I'm all on board of that.
0: I, I think we have to define first and foremost what's in contention. Like, is it being in the top six? At the end of the year, is it being, uh, in that top eight or, or ten all of November and when the rankings come out? Um, if it's the top ten, yeah, put me in that group. I, I think Oregon's going to be a top ten team next season. Um, do I think that they make the college football playoff? I think the defense is good enough. Like you said, like they, yeah. the defense will be good enough, uh, to go toe to toe with other teams that are going to be in the college football playoff. It's just, will the offense be able to muster enough production to balance what the defense can do on the football field? That, that's going to be the ultimate question. I think they could, but I think there's, there's so many question marks out there at quarterback, at offensive line, even at receiver, who's, who's calling the plays that right. You can't say definitively. Now I will say this. LSU this season showed us, uh, if you have talent at some positions and you can make some adjustments and, uh, adapt on the fly, you can see humongous areas of growth offensively. I mean, LSU was archaic, uh, from an offensive standpoint for the last 10 or 15 years. I mean, just bad football because of play calling, uh, because of offensive decisions, whether it's going forward on fourth down or not going forward or punting or kicking field goals. And, and quite honestly, the quarterback spot. I mean Joe Burrow, Joe Burrow was not a first round draft pick. I don't even think he was an NFL a major NFL prospect in September. and yet January 15th, two days removed from the last championship game, he is essentially a lock to be the number one quarterback picked in the NFL draft and to be the number one pick selected overall. I mean, he, he completed 57% of his passes last season as a junior, 2,800 yards, 16 touchdowns, five interceptions. And then in his senior year, he exploded, you know, his, his attempts went up by over 150 throws. He completed, uh, 76% of his passes. He threw for 5,671 yards. His yards per attempt went from 7.6 to 10.8. His yards per, att- uh, his yards per, uh, completion went from 7.9 to 12.5. His touchdowns went from 16 to 60. And his interceptions, even though he threw over 150 more throws, increased by just one. I mean, he had a heck of a year and that's a large part because Ed Orgeron, the, off- the head coach at LSU, decided we need to make drastic changes with the offense. And they did, and they were able to capitalize on the talent that they had at the receiver position, at the running back position, uh, and along the offensive line because they operated their offense in a different manner. Now, I'm not saying Oregon has the similar talent at receiver because it's clear they do not but I still believe they have good talent at the receiver spot. They've got a guy that runs the football hard and C.J. Verdell and has two different 1000 yard seasons in his first t- two years. They have the best offensive lineman in the country and Penny Sewell back for his junior year, and they've recruited the position well. So I I don't necessarily think uh, it's going to be impossible. It's probably going to be uh, some bumps in the road, but they can certainly get to that point where they, they see – some expediated growth, and all of a sudden this offense is operating in tune with a defense that's championship level that they can get into the college football playoff. Is it probable? Probably not. Is it possible? Absolutely.
1: Yeah, no, I think we're on the same page there. I just think you're going to have to see a lot of growth offensively, and it comes down to what happens with this, this upcoming hire and – it, it it could be a higher that is the difference between a team that maybe wins ten games and a team that is competing in the College World Playoff semifinals or something. So, um, and then, and that's what makes it such a big deal. And I think the LSU example is a great one in terms of yeah, that's a program that everyone knew had a lot of talent that everybody knew was capable of competing on the on the field at least athlete to athlete, but they just didn't have the right offensive strategy or, or, or game plans, or, 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 or we're just a little bit archaic, like you said, in terms of how they approach things. And they change those things, and, and you see they, they you know, they really, you know, it, it paid dividends in a major, major way. uh an incredible season for LSU, one of the best seasons historically, you know, in college football. So uh, do I expect Oregon to make that kind of improvement? Probably, I mean, no. <laughs> I mean, just that would take a time. I mean, it would... Re- it would, it would be an incredible, incredible thing to duplicate, but I do think that there's potential for this offense to be really, really good. Um, but a lot of it's going to come down to, to who's hired here in the next couple of weeks, um, to, to run this offense under Mario Cristobal. All right. Sixth question. And we're switching gears here. We're talking a little hoops from at match. I'm sorry. At March Madness 83. What's the word on Duquesne and Rutgers significantly improving with Eric Williams and Eugene Amaori transferring to Oregon? In Ken Palm, the Dukes jumped from 173 to 66, and the Scarlet Knights jumped from 78 to 32. Those are impressive and massive leaps. Matt, um, kind of an interesting question, but is is this a? Do you think does this have any bearings on what you perceive from those two transfers who we should mention are not playing for Oregon this year but are currently sitting out?
0: Oh, that's a. I mean, that's a very, very deep question. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) One in which. I'll be honest, like, I've not paid a single second of attention to Duquesne or, uh, to Rutgers basketball, uh, because I'm so busy covering the men's side of things for, for Oregon basketball. Um, I certainly know Rutgers is one of, uh, the biggest surprises in college basketball this season because, uh, last time I checked, uh, they are respectable and, and that, They're almost beyond respectable. They're, they're good. They're 12 and four overall and they're three and three and two in conference play, you know, better than, than some teams like Iowa or Michigan or Ohio State. Um, it, it, does it mean Eugene Omari wasn't a good player, was not a a good team player? I, I don't think that's, that's fair to say. Um, what does it mean for, for those guys i'm not quite sure i mean sometimes we see crazy things happen like you know guys just you know the part or some guy comes into the program and just kind of clicks maybe they got some super freshman that was you know gonna have to sit behind one of these guys and because they left they've been thrust into, the, into the, the the fire a little bit and those teams found out that they actually got a really good player recruiting wise and, and who knows? I, I don't, I wouldn't read too much into it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that would also be my, my takeaway on that. And good research there. Interesting thought. I mean, I had, I had not considered, like you, I had not followed Rectors or Duquesne basketball at all. Uh, I had no idea. I hadn't even thought to look and see how they'd progress without either of those players, but, um.
0: Plus you know, we don't I, know what type of schedules. Are. I mean, looking at Duquesne right, right now, like, from a non-conference perspective, like, uh, they have played it really quickly just looking at their, at their list. They didn't play a single Power 5 team in their non-conference schedule. Zero. They play in the Atlantic 10 Conference. They're 14 and 2, they're 4 and 0 in conference play, but Princeton, uh, Lipscomb, Indiana State, Air Force, LMU, Loyal Marymount, uh, Virginia Military, Columbia, Radford, APSU, whoever that is, UAB, Marshall. I mean, these aren't teams that that are going to be high in the Ken Palm rankings. Are going to be teams that are are you know juggernaut NCAA tournament squads. So yeah, they're they're four zero in conference play and they're fourteen and two, but they haven't played anybody yet. So like I, I mean, let me just look <laughs> at the Ken Palm rankings too. Like, well, where are these teams in the Ken Palm? Like if, are they you know Ken Palm's got Rutgers at 32 which is which is pretty good Duquesne is 66 uh they're you know their strength of schedule though isn't very good and um so yeah I, I this it, is it's just such an off comment I wouldn't worry about it
1: I'm just over here laughing that we're discussing the merits of Duquesne and Rutgers basketball improvements let's just move on I like, guess
0: this is too much of our time
1: that we should be uh, for basically all right. The seventh question from at Brady T Thompson: Is Robbie Ashford planning on playing collegiate baseball for the Ducks, or does he have an MLB opportunity? Also, will he be an early enrollee? And it's worth mentioning that Ashford was a late addition to Oregon's uh, recruiting class. He was, I think, signed uh, kind of after a lot of the players were on signing day uh, back in December. Uh, but is, is a quarterback, but is also a, a, a high-caliber baseball prospect. Matt, do you do we have anything definitive on what he's doing? I know it's been discussed, like he would consider playing collegiate baseball. I think that was the plan um, when he was committed previously to I think it was Ole Miss, but do we do we know one way or the other for sure? Uh
0: he is intending to play baseball at Oregon. He will be drafted this spring. Now, how high does he get picked? I don't believe he's expected to be selected high enough that's gonna warrant uh, a bonus that pulls him away from uh playing football and baseball at Oregon. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if at some point he has to make a decision on what he wants to play uh, collegiately, full-time, because he's going to be good at both sports, and it's very difficult to play both uh, yes. uh, at the collegiate level. And um, So we'll, we'll see there. Uh, but for now, it does look like uh, he will be here. He will not be an early enrollee. He's supposed to show up in June.
1: Yeah, there's a recap on on Robbie Ashford, and it will be interesting to see what he chooses to do. But I think an exciting prospect to, uh, athletically at least, is something Oregon has not had at quarterback uh, in a couple of years in terms of his ability to, to run the football. Um, not a terrible passer, certainly an intriguing prospect, someone that kind of was involved, he kind of came on late for Oregon, certainly in the process. Um, those are the questions we have this week, but I did want to end the podcast uh, talking a little bit about the additions, or I guess the return of, of these players on defense and how that might impact a uh, starting defense for next year, Matt. And I'm going to – I posted this on Twitter. I posted this on our site uh, yesterday, yesterday being uh, Monday. I So I guess technically I should just say on Monday I posted who I'm predicting would be the uh, starting 11 defense for Oregon uh, come next year. And I, I want to get your opinions on this too. I want to see if you kind of agree with this. But my – my starting 11 on the defensive line, I have Austin Falliou, who just announced he'd return, playing next to Jordan Jordan Scott, who also just announced that, with Kayvon Thibodeau at the other end position. I have Isaac Slade, Mautau Etia, uh, returning and starting at one inside linebacker spot with Justin Flo next to him, and Mace Funa at the stud position. At corner, I've got Thomas Graham and Diamond Lenore returning and, and holding down their spots with Javon Holland at nickel, Brady Breeze at one safety spot, and Nick Pickett at the other. Do you, do you hear that and think, boy, you're, I'm off base? Or do you kind of agree with most of that? Or, or I guess what's your overall opinion in terms of just kind of how how would you slate it, I guess, too?
0: Well, for one, real quick, uh, let's peel the, the layers back and open the door. Can you slack me that list so I can look at it instead of trying to hear it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, I will do that. Slack is uh, how we by Slack.
0: With you. If you're not unfamiliar, if you're unfamiliar with the term Slack, uh, it's a work communications uh, app that a lot of businesses use. Um, now that I have this in front of me, yes. uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think um, your group is probably where I I would start as well. Austin Folio and Jordan Scott. Uh, Basically three year starters the last three years for Oregon Folio, you know, based, you know, two, you could say two. Uh, Thibodeau started half the season this year. I think all three of those guys are your logical starters up front. I don't know if there's anyone else out there that would warrant pushing them out. I think Popo Amabe could certainly take away some snaps from Jordan Scott, much like he did the second half of this season. Uh, but that goes back to my comment of, of, the linebackers are just rotating guys and playing, you know, guys, uh, fresher for longer periods of the game. Uh, it's not a, a, a knock on Scott, more so, uh, a, a tip of the cap to Popo Amave for elevating his game. Isaac is gonna be the, I think Isaac's gonna be the star of the defense. He's not gonna be the most talented, but he's gonna be the quarterback, if you will. Flo, I'm with you, he starts. Funa, I'm with you. Uh, he starts at the stud position. Uh, maybe Adrian Jackson can take that spot from Funa. Um, Funa did have a really good start to the year, but kind of faded off towards the second half of that season. Um uh, maybe that's just because of Bryson Young's elevation to his game or, or what have you. I don't know. Uh, and then your secondary is spot on. There's nothing that, to really pick there, um with Graham, Holland, Breeze, Pickett, and Lenore. I, I think, Breeze's second half of the season was all-American level, and if he plays like that um, for the the entirety of the 2020 season, there's going to be a chance that he's an all-American next year. And while I don't think he has the size to, you know, to be a, a long-time, you know, star superstar safety at the NFL level, his production could warrant him hearing his name called. Uh, at some kind of later round of the NFL draft if he can kind of replicate the second half of 2019 across all of 2020. Um, second string, you've got Doralus, Amave, and DJ Johnson along the defensive line. I think I would probably put Keon Ware-Hudson um, in that defensive line ahead of DJ Johnson, uh, maybe. Uh, I think that's going to be a really big battle between those two guys. Um, I don't... Uh, this And this is maybe a little critical, but I, I wasn't too impressed with D.J. Johnson this season. Um, maybe it was just because of limited snaps and other guys, but I think he still has uh, a lot to prove there before we just kind of guarantee he's in the two deep. Um, Samson Newell, Sewell, and Jackson being your three guys, I, I would maybe have Mathis and, and Newell and Sewell battle it out. I think Jackson's for sure in there. Noah Sewell's going to present a lot of versatility, so he could bounce around, and maybe that's why he plays a ton with the second group. Uh, Samson came on strong again this year um, and was was much better than I was anticipating. But uh, that linebacker battle for the second string is going to be pretty in, intense, and because a guy like Drew Mathis, MJ Cunningham, they had bright spots this season, um, maybe they can push their way in as well. And then the secondary, look, if you're out there throwing out Michael Wright and Dante Manning as your corners. Uh, Bennett Williams, Steve Stevens, and Verona McKinley as your safeties and nickel. Uh, that, that, that five right there pro- could probably start for multiple Pac-12 teams. That's how talented Oregon's secondary in 2020 is going to be. Um I have no issues with that group as well. Uh, maybe, maybe a guy like a DJ Hill, uh, excuse me, like a DJ James, uh, can, can get his way into uh, the cornerback spot ahead of Dante Manning because he had, he did play this season um, and played quite a bit. I think he played in almost every single game uh, and, and was Oregon's fourth corner. So uh, we always fall for the, you know, recency guy, recency bias, guy that shows up, you know, most recently is going to instantly start or, you know, be the guy on the second string of the depth chart. And, and while Dante Manning is really good, he is going to have to beat out another true freshman uh, that was on this team this season Uh, and played quite a bit, whether it be special teams or at the cornerback position in D.J. James.
1: Yeah, and just my last thoughts on this, then we can wrap up the podcast. But you look at the way that second string, and you just mentioned the part that I think gets most Oregon fans so excited, that secondary is just loaded. I mean, there's no other way to say it. McKinley was a freshman All-American, for crying out loud. Bennett Williams was a freshman All-American in his own right three years ago. At Illinois and Mikhail Wright and Dante Manning, I'm pretty sure, are the two highest-rated cornerback recruits Oregon has ever signed. Um, and Steve Stevens was the highest-rated, was a higher-rated recruit than either Pickett, Breeze, or Javon Holland were. So, I mean, it is a loaded group of secondary guys, and you still have a guy like uh, Jamal Hill, who last year was really pushing to play in the nickel, and a guy like TriQuest Bridges, who's very exciting. Um, who kind of moved around between safety and corner. So that secondary is going to be absolutely lights out. And they could, it's a group that you could see a ton of different people playing a ton of different roles. I'll be very curious to see, um, what they do with McKinley and, and Bennett Williams in particular. Uh, just because those guys are clearly really talented, but they're, I mean, I don't know. Brady Brees and Nick Pickett are, too. So it's going to be really, really tough to, to see those guys unseated, I would think.
0: Look, if one of those, one of those starters gets unseated, it means the guy that beat him is really, really good.
1: Yep, 100%. That's what I said. A couple people were, were bringing up the possibility of a Bennett Williams starting over Nick Pickett. And I'm going, like, if someone does that, kudos, kudos to Bennett Williams because that means he's going to be a star. Because Nick Pickett's basically been a starter for two and a half really? seasons at Oregon. Yeah, I mean, he's been a starter for his whole career here, basically, and he's been a pretty darn productive player of doing so.
0: All right. I think that's going to do it for us on the Austin Audible's podcast, this mailbag. Uh, thank you for sending in your questions. Thank you for listening as always. Uh, we will talk to you soon.
1: Adios, amigos.